Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Welcome back, everyone. If you're a faculty member, what do you remember about your first year? The first time you had to plan a course, write a syllabus, create assessments, and then greet that sea of expectant student faces all on your own. You had to learn who was who in your department, where the post-it notes and the coffee maker were, and then stay on top of your courses while serving on committees and then somehow keep your research agenda front and center. It's a lot, and the truth is, college faculty often don't have a ton of support when they make this transition. Our guest today is Beth Budney Buckley, a faculty member in the Physician Assistant Studies Program at Frostburg State University. Beth just completed her first year, and in this episode, she speaks with us about the transition from practicing medicine to teaching it, adapting her PA courses to online during COVID, and the support she received from a nine-month fellowship program specifically for clinically practicing PAs who are entering academia. You'll hear her refer to this program as PALA, which is the PA Leadership and Learning Academy, a statewide initiative led by the University of Maryland, Baltimore, to advance PA education, research, and policy. Let's dive in. Beth, welcome to Moving the Needle. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Erin. We're so excited to, to dive into this conversation today. So I just, I guess I'd like to start uh, just by having you tell us a little bit about your history. You, you recently made the transition from full-time clinical practice as a physician assistant uh, to PA education. So tell us a little bit about that transition. Why? Why did you make that switch? I think there was a lot of reasons. Um, I had been in healthcare practicing um, either in as a PA or in some sort of clinic for about 25 years. I started in healthcare when I was 15. Um, I always knew that science was something I loved and taking care of people was something that I loved, but I really didn't quite understand the capacity I was going to do that in. I thought about being an RN, um, and uh, we had a project in school where we were in high school. It's kind of similar to what you sometimes have in middle school where you get, so you're supposed to talk to somebody in a field that you think that you will enjoy. And there was a local dermatologist that was a family friend um, that had just come to the area, and we had talked, um, and they were they needed help. So I had help there in the office and I started filing slides. Um, they then taught me how to be a medical assistant. That was before that you needed to be certified. So I learned everything on the job. Um, and then after I finished schooling, um, I went to Western Maryland College. I got my biology degree. I was still working there during the summers. And afterwards, I worked there full time as a medical assistant. And we had this conversation where they said, you know, I think you should do more. So I went back to PA school and I just loved I loved medicine. I love taking care of people. It came naturally. Um, I love the rapport that I had with patients. Um, but after a while, medicine changed. Medicine started to become a little bit like a business. Um, and I think the changes in medicine where we were trying to make strides for patient care and having more um, metrics with patients um, sometimes took away from not only the time that you had with patients, but the rapport that you could make with patients, um, the ability to be advocates for your patients. And that was really important. Um, it's something that I experienced in my own family and in my own life. And that was kind of the reason why I went back to school. So when 
kind of your why changes for what you're doing. It kind of makes it um, a little bit harder at the end of the day. And when I realized that I wasn't really learning as much as I wanted to and I wasn't growing, I realized I needed to do something else. So how did you make the leap to education? So one of the things that I loved about patient care was teaching the patients um, and helping them to understand why they needed to do what they needed to do. If you just write a prescription and say, here, do this, it's, it's kind of more difficult if you don't understand the reasoning behind it. Um, what I didn't understand is there's a big difference between um, teaching difficult concepts to your patients and then teaching difficult concepts to your students. So that was kind of a little bit of a learning curve. Um, I actually had taught in person before COVID for about six weeks here at Frostburg. Um, they had had a need for uh, teaching anatomy, both the lab and the in-person person portions. So I'd had some in-person um, experiences and I really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the interaction with the students. I uh, really enjoyed the light bulb moments. Um, one of the great things that I had when we were in person, um, I didn't teach the patient assessment class um, when I was going back to full time, um, was we had a patient who was struggling with learning how to palpate the thyroid. Um, so we had a patient or we had a student um, that that uh, was a, uh, what I could tell could be a model for this. And it was that light bulb moment that, you know, he finally realized how to do this and he was so grateful. And you never really know as an educator, whether or not it's in healthcare professions or whatever, um, how what you're gonna teach that student somewhere along the line can help them. Um, I think it kind of, in, in life, it kind of comes full circle that maybe one day he'll be able to palpate a thyroid and find somebody's thyroid cancer. So it really sounds like in both your clinical practice and uh, in, your connection to teaching now that really what comes front and center is are the people you're serving either the patients that you are treating or the students that you're working with it sounds like this is kind of a people forward point of view how did covid impact this approach I think the students had uh, a hard time connecting to us, and I think the students had a hard time connecting with each other. I know they created study groups, but I think it's different when um, you can be in person and you can kind of have that human interaction, and I think we we missed a lot of that with COVID. Um, I, I didn't really realize you know, how that difference between the online platform and being in person is different. I think it was different not only with the connections with the students, but connections with each other as faculty too, um, to be able to, to kind of lean on each other. Um, you can have a conversation and somebody can say, you know, this is how you do it. And you never know if um, if you can, can't really read their facial expressions, obviously, when you're talking on the phone. Um, there was also difficulty with the, the online learning platform, too, is that a lot of pa- a lot of students didn't purposely have their cameras off, but because they would have bandwidth issues, they wouldn't be able to listen to the lecture appropriately if they had their camera on. So um, I think that gave them more of a free pass sometimes, not necessarily intentionally kind of to tune out a little bit, but you also, it was more difficult to watch 24 five tiny facial expressions on a screen than kind of surveying the land of facial expressions when you're in the classroom. So that made it a little bit more difficult too. Um, but yeah, the, the human the human interaction um, I think is important too because you, you kind of learn to um, 
to care for one another as a cohort and you learn to care a little bit and not that you don't care about your students, but you learn to um, have connection with your students because you can have more side conversations with them and a little bit of, learn a little bit about them when there really isn't the opportunity to do that when you're in the online environment. You kind of start the class, you end the class um, and they're so screen fatigued by sitting there, you know, five, eight hours a day and then studying on their computer for so many hours that they really don't want to, you know, chat with you at the end of class. They've just kind of, you know, had enough of the screen. And I think that, I think it made it hard to, to have a connection as much with students. Um, I don't necessarily think it changed um, their ability to learn the subject matter. It just made it a little bit more, um, uh, less interactive. And then they were less engaged. Yeah, absolutely. So currently you are in the, the first full academic year. Uh, as a faculty member in the PA program at Frostburg University. Mm -hmm. um, so just tell us a little bit about your, your first year as a PA faculty member. What were your responsibilities? What did you teach? What kinds of things surprised you? Um, so I think what I didn't realize, I think that I alluded to a little bit before, is the difference between teaching your students and teaching your patients. Um, I also did not realize that there's an art and science to teaching. Um, I think as you go through your education, you just, you're kind of a sponge and you're absorbing anything, but you really don't realize not only the time, but the, the, that just like there's an art and science to medicine, there's an art and science to teaching that I really, and I think it's never, it's never taught in PA school because it really isn't needed to be taught in PA school. The PALA program, which is where I met you, Erin, uh, was tremendously helpful to help to learn that as you go along. And I highly recommend to anybody, if it's not a PALA program, I know PAEA has a jumpstart program for new faculty, just so you can learn kind of the art and the science of the curriculum and, and why we do the things you do. So when I came on board, we were in our second semester. Um, I was teaching anatomy, um, which obviously has a lab component to it. And then I was teaching basic science. Um, both of these were really content, and I think most of PA school, but these are really kind of content, dense, um, really um, uh, kind of difficult subjects. Basic science kind of put together, it was a myriad of kind of all your difficult classes, like your biochemistry, it was a little bit of genetics, kind of all rolled into one. And then uh, human anatomy obviously is human anatomy. Um, like I said, what was really tough was kind of taking that hands-on learning. Um, we have an anatomage table. So um, uh, the students did not get the opportunity to do um, dissection on human cadavers just because we couldn't have that many students uh, in one room uh, during COVID. Um, but we did have the anatomage table that we could employ. We kind of split up our classes um, into two days and then we have two anatomage tables, so into smaller classes. Um, the interesting thing about that is we found that that is something that we're going to keep. It was a positive thing of COVID. Um, the smaller groups and the separation of classes into two days allowed everybody to have access to the table easier. Um, it allowed them to have more access to me because me teaching 25 students at once versus me teaching 13 at once kind of in two smaller chunks of kind of seven or eight in each classroom really worked well. The students seemed to enjoy that. So that was a positive thing that came out of COVID. I think the difficult thing was trying to teach hands-on learning um, in an online environment. 
Um, as a as an instructor, you have to have assessments so you kind of see as you're going along that patient or that patients that our students are kind of learning the concepts. So when you have this one anatomage table and you can watch them kind of interact all around it, you can kind of correct things if they're having difficulty with dissecting, or you can kind of hear them talking amongst themselves if they may not quite be getting it, or they're more apt to ask questions. But if you're trying to find on a screen a way for them to dissect things um, and understand the concepts, it's really hard to do that because really only one person on their screen can be dissecting at once. They can kind of talk to each other, but you don't really know if they're kind of learning the skills and they're learning the concepts because you can really only assess one person at a time. And if you have 15 people that you're trying to do that in a, a short period of time, it really makes it hard. Wow. So you had this transition to online learning at the same time you were making the transition to becoming a full-time faculty member. That sounds intense. What was it like? I think what kind of drove the point home of how really difficult it was going to be to transition to the online learning concept for kind of hands-on concepts is I talked right before we switched over to entirely virtual uh, for our classes like in in mid-November and instructors who had been teaching for 25 years were really struggling with how they were going to do that. I mean, here they were, you know, seasoned, seasoned professors who have done this for so long and they were struggling. So I think that kind of gave me a little bit of reassurance that it wasn't just me and it wasn't just me kind of starting out. So that that was really helpful. Um, uh, as far as the responsibilities, um, something that kind of changed between just adjuncting and being in person is the extra responsibilities. Um, the fact that my, at least in my program, which not a lot of PA programs are, that I was on a tenure track. Um, so understanding the extra responsibilities that's involved in that, like the requirements for service, the requirements for research, the requirements, you know, obviously you're going to be teaching classes. So that's kind of the easiest part. But but trying to understand um, kind of how that played into things as well. And I, I, you, I didn't realize, you know, that, that that was part of, you know, what it means to be a, a, a professor. Um so, so, yeah, there was a there was a lot of eye opening moments. Um, I think what I what was probably different between my experience starting out um, at least full-time online versus in person was the moments like the lonely moments. Um, I think, and what was really interesting when I reflected back on it, and as I think that's what the students were feeling too, but nobody really talked about it. Um, so that, you know, I was, um, my, my, my kids work or, uh, go to school close to where I am. So I would drop them off and I came in here and I, I would literally be here by myself in complete science silence for like months. And I'd have interaction with the students for hands-on, but I, again, it comes back to that same point of like human connection and how that not only helps you to be engaged, and helps you kind of learn your craft, but it's the same thing that the students need, that that human interaction uh, for one another when they bounce ideas off each other help them to learn as well. So I think that's what kind of, um, that kind of changed the learning curve for people who may have started out in full-time, um, full-time teaching in kind of the online kind of COVID environment. Tell us about the support that got you through this year. I think that was the important part of the mentorship. Um, I think that's what's helpful for either being, um, either having a mentor in your university. We have a mentor program um, with a faculty member that's 
tenured completely outside of our department. So you can kind of ask the difficult questions that, you know, is this okay? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this how I'm supposed to be feeling? And then if you have another level, if you have the chance to um, participate in Palo. So Palo, I probably should say what that is, the Physician Assistant uh, Leadership and Learning Academy that's uh, through the University of Maryland system or PAEA uh, that offers the Jumpstart program, that it kind of helps you um, to understand that what the, a lot of the feelings that I had and a lot of the feelings that you have um, kind of the interaction with your students um, uh, is, is normal. And I think that's I think that's helpful to have that no matter whether you start in an online environment or you start uh, in an in-person uh, type setting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of that support. So can you describe uh, a little bit what your experience uh, was like in in the uh, in the Pala Fellowship Program? Yeah, so so I, I cannot say enough for the the Pala team. Um, I think it's 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 such a wonderful um, and amazing opportunity. Just because, um, like I said, you don't you don't realize what the art and science of teaching is and what really goes on. It's kind of like you're you're watching a play and you really don't understand like all the components that are going on the behind the scenes. So as a student, you're there, okay, I have a syllabus, I have to follow the syllabus, they give me exams, I'm done. That you don't really realize what's really going on behind the scenes. So this kind of gives you a chance to kind of break everything down um, and to, to learn what you need to do to allow the students to have um, the best experience and to be engaged. Um, I will tell you that I was one of those students that I had, I don't know if it was necessarily anxiety, but I didn't understand like the team type learning environment. Like that like created major anxiety for me. Like I didn't, I didn't understand what the benefit was of, of learning as a group. Like I just kind of went and did my thing. But when I, but through the PAL experience, I learned that, you know, when you work as a group and you know that it's going to be a safe environment, that you kind of bounce ideas off each other and things that I say may be uh, said in a way that somebody helps to learn a concept. They may say things in a way or explain things in a way or draw things in a way um, that helps me to learn a concept. And what's interesting is I learned ways that students learn, not only through Pala, but interacting with the students that now have helped me when my students this week, as, as new students, we um, they have to come see us in, at week two of their program um, to, to help them to learn. Because they would come to me and say, uh, like five out of five students came to me and said, I'm overwhelmed. Like that's that I said, that's completely normal. Like, what do I do? What kind of instructional ideas do you have for me? And I think... Um, the first thing, like I said, to new faculty that came on too is to number one, give yourself grace that you're going to have times that you're going to be stressed. Um, and I think the other thing to, uh, that that helped me through the Pala um, experience too is that um, it gave me um, instructional strategies for myself to help the students, but it also gave me a way to help students to help themselves. Um, with different with different ways of learning. And I didn't really understand. I knew that we have all have our own like kind of unique way of learning. But what I didn't understand is if you employ like more than one of your senses, like if you go and listen to the lecture and you write it out that you're going to have an easier time with learning things. And I, I didn't realize too, like 
one of the ways that I learn is I either listen or I look, I have to write everything down as I'm going along. Like that's just my way of learning. And what I learned kind of through the science of education and the science of instructing and teaching and learning is there's literally kind of a way that the synapses come together when you're writing versus typing. So one of the first things that I do now at the beginning of the semester is I send out the article that talks about this, reminding them you can use your iPads, but if you're struggling, try changing from typing out your notes to writing out your notes and see if it makes a difference. Yeah. What uh, what advice would you have for uh, for clinicians who are thinking about making the move to healthcare education? Um, I think first off, I would suggest they either uh, adjunct or guest lecture multiple times just so they can get a feel whether or not this is um, something that they enjoy. Um, there's there's a lot of extra stuff that's involved um, with uh, education, like advising, um, uh, kind of service to your university, kind of service to your team. There's a lot of meetings and can, uh, committees that you're involved with. But if you can just understand whether or not that teaching is for you, I think that's a starting point. Um, another thing is to don't be afraid to ask kind of for guidance and to ask for mentorship. Um, I think in the beginning, we're all kind of a little bit in uh, survival mode, which you, I, I think to kind of keep yourself going and to keep that light at the end of the tunnel, to don't be afraid to ask for any kind of um, uh, guidance as you're going forward. And lastly, I think I alluded to this a little bit before, is to try to find some sort of program that helps to um, teach you how to teach. So maybe kind of bringing this back full circle to the uh, connection between uh, educating health professionals, uh, future health professionals, and patient care. is One thing that uh, I'm curious about is, have you seen anything on the horizon in health profession education that you think really could move the needle in terms of patient care and, and ultimately, you know, the health of, of our population? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. So COVID really taught all of us to be flexible, flexible in so many ways. So um, I myself have three children. I was kind of trying to help them while I was home. So it, it kind of kind of taught us um, flexibility, not only uh, in the workforce, but kind of flexibility with ourselves. Um, and I think a big thing in healthcare, which I think surged just because we had to, because we had to keep people safe is telemedicine and telehealth. Um, that was something that I really, as a healthcare provider, did not have much exposure to, um, just because, you know, you know, we expected our patients, like, how do you take care of a patient that when you can't lay your hands on them? Like, is there a way that you can properly take care of patients just from, a, um, uh, like through, through, like, through, can you take care of patients through a screen? And I think, um, as we teach students, because this was this is something because I've been I was practicing for about fifteen years before I switched over to academia. If we teach students that it's um, telehealth is just part of the medical model and and teach them how to utilize it appropriately, I think it's going to continue to grow and continue to to help our underserved populations because it's just going to be kind of their normal and to kind of then um, allow the, allow patients to just be comfortable with it because if if your provider's comfortable with it, then you're going to be more likely to um, allow your patients to be comfortable with the concept and um, just get better health care in the end. Absolutely. And, and I think you raised such an important point about the way that the uh, evolution uh, works both ways. So there's the evolution in the industry, which has to have a 
uh, subsequent evolution in the way that the that the next generation of providers uh, is taught and trained to to take advantage of some of these methods or approaches. I think that's um, that's always such an interesting back and forth uh, when you're thinking about curriculum and instruction and and um, you know just moving a profession forward. No, absolutely. And I think I think it's something that it has to be accepted within the um, professional environment first, and then it kind of trickles into the kind of the population. So there's there's usually studies that are going to occur within that professional environment. So then the the professionals kind of have the background to kind of um, uh, help disseminate that information to your patients to understand that it's okay too, that it kind of comes before it'll have more mainstream articles than, you know, you see it in New York times, like telemedicine and it's surge in, 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 in healthcare. So, um, I think you're absolutely right as, as far as, um, kind of changing your curriculum, um, and then helping to change the future of the profession as a result. Well, Beth, we are so glad that you are in academia and we're so grateful for the time that you took to tell us about your first year um, as a full-time faculty member and, uh, you know, all of the uh, curveballs that were thrown your way in terms of a, a pandemic and new new technologies. And uh, just for all those other faculty members who are listening, who uh, you know, getting through their first or second year, just you're not alone. Take advantage of the resources around you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that experience with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Erin. Erin, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.